0: Hi, this is John Heminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope Broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today we have Pastor Jones in to discuss this week's message in which he deals with another sermon that Jesus himself gave, this one on the issue of prophecy. I see, Pastor, that you've entitled it, A Discussion About Christ's Coming Kingdom. Is this the first message of Jesus which deals with end-time events?
1: Uh, Yes, John, by the way, it's great to be with you. Um, What Jesus said as recorded in uh, the passage for today, Luke 17, 20 to 37, as far as I can ascertain, is the first time that Jesus gives us a window into what it will look like on earth shortly before his return
0: as king. So is Jesus speaking here of what it will be like before he comes in the rapture? No, although that uh, point
1: is a point that he makes in his remarks at some point at some place in the message, Jesus mentions a, uh, a catching away of people that I believe would identify as the rapture, but that is not the main thrust of Christ's remarks in this sermon. He is focused on the uh, issue of people not being ready for his kingdom when it comes to earth. And that, as best as I can understand, does not place um, in the prophecy until seven years after Christ returned for his church in what we commonly call the rapture.
0: You use the phrase, as best as I understand. Are you saying that you're not certain how the end times are going to work out?
1: That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, Now, before I go any farther, let me say that I love Bible prophecy and enjoy studying it. I've taught on several occasions through the book of Revelation, and I find Bible prophecy extremely helpful in my daily life. But if you run into a Bible teacher who claims to have figured out Bible prophecy to the point that he is prepared to give you times and dates, or even the season when Jesus will return, he's, he's an
0: error. So why would you say that then?
1: Well, let me take you to two Bible passages that speak to this issue. Uh, in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus stated, But of that day and hour, and he's speaking of his return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So anyone who claims to know when Jesus will return is claiming to know something that Jesus said no human knows, and even the angels in heaven do not know. Then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, Jesus' disciples wanted to know when he was going to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel. In verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now the word times there has to do with the length of time. And the word season has to do with the quality of time. That is what it's like. For instance, we were in winter season right now. Well, winter has certain characteristics. as snow, it has colder weather. So when a man says he knows when Christ is going to return or what it will be like before Christ's coming, he's claiming to have knowledge that Jesus said, no man knows in Matthew 24, not even the angels. And then in, in Acts chapter one, he said, the apostles
0: weren't even to know this. But... Are there not signs of Christ's return?
1: It depends on what return you're talking about.
0: Are you saying that there's more than one return of Christ then? I believe there is. So how do how you arrive at that conclusion?
1: Well, Jesus makes statements like the ones I cited that clearly teach no one knows either the length of time before his return or what it will be like before he comes. And he also laid out in the Gospel of Matthew, the same chapter, by the way, I'm referencing chapter 24, At least 15 signs that would precede his return as king. So, since we know that our Lord neither lied nor contradicted himself, many Bible scholars have concluded that there will be two comings of Christ. One, a completely unexpected coming, which takes place uh, uh, at some unknown time in the future. And he takes, in that place, he he takes his true followers out of the world before God ushers in a terrible time of suffering um, that's called by Christ himself, the great tribulation in Matthew 24, verse 21. And so many have adopted the term rapture for that unannounced coming for his true followers. And at the end of what's called the great tribulation, Jesus will return to set up his kingdom on earth. We call that return Christ's second advent. So there's two different ones.
0: Claims that Christ's followers would be taken out of this world before a time of a worldwide suffering have been made for many years now. Why do you have confidence that Jesus will return?
1: Uh, I have great confidence because of the fulfilled
0: prophecies of the scripture um, that that we can look at from the past. Can you give our listeners some examples of the Bible prophecies that have been fulfilled? Well, I'd be glad to. Um,
1: Let me start by saying that the Bible was not written by one person or even um, in a single generation. The Bible contains 66 different books which were written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. So in that kind of a time span, it's obvious that many of the different authors did not know each other. So many of the prophecies that were uttered by prophets in one generation were fulfilled long after God's spokesman was dead. Uh, For instance, in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, uh, um, Moses is recording this, but this had been spoken in the Garden of Eden. God predicted that a savior was coming who would crush Satan, uh, but be hurt in the process. He also said that the Savior would be descendant of Eve, making no mention of a human father. And so you have a hint of the cross in the third chapter of the Bible. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham that his name would be great, um, his descendants would be a great nation, uh, that they would have their own land, and that one of them would, and this would be the Messiah, the promised Christ, would bless the entire world. And of course, uh, the the prophecy of Abraham's name being great of all the people who've ever lived on the planet, uh, Abraham is one of the most famous of all. He's the, he's considered a huge leader in both Christianity and Judaism and as as Islam as well. So um, clearly, that prophecy was fulfilled. The prophecy that his descendants would become a great nation—that's the nation of Israel—would have their own land, which God gave them, and one of them uh, be the Messiah. Of course, that would come hundreds of years after God told that to Abraham, and even hundreds of years after it was recorded. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 3 and 4, the same basic blessing went to Abraham's son Isaac. In chapter 28, verse 13 and 14, that same blessing is passed down to Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's name later is changed to Israel. That's where we get the nation of Israel's name and what we would call the children of Israel. In Genesis 49, um, the tribe of Judah was uh, prophesied to become the tribe of the kings. Now Moses is writing this, they wouldn't have a king in Israel for over 400 years after he wrote this. And yet there it is. And not only that, but when when David, uh, greatest king of Israel comes to the throne, he is from the tribe of Judah and his descendants then are the rightful kings ever since. A fulfillment of Genesis 49, something written hundreds of years before. In Exodus chapter 12, Here's a minute detail about the Passover lamb, that that not a bone of him could be broken. What's the big deal about that? Well, we don't even see that uh, detail of any importance until we get to the New Testament. At Jesus' crucifixion, John points out that not a bone of him was to be broken, and that Passover lamb was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the coming Messiah King was to be announced by a star. Um, that's fourteen hundred years before that actually happened. Psalm eighty-nine, which is written around a um, oh somewhere between say seven hundred to thousand years before Christ, the Messiah King is said to be a descendant of the great King David. In uh, in Psalm twenty-two, uh, which is fascinating, Psalm written by David himself around a thousand BC, thousand years before Christ. Um, if you if you read that Psalm and you and you get in your mindset that this is actually words that Christ would have been thinking and, and saying on the cross. It's just mind boggling what's there. The opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's something that Jesus uttered while he's on the cross. The mocking of Christ is mentioned there. His great thirst is mentioned there. The gambling over his garments is mentioned there. All as if you were looking from behind Christ's eyes. In Psalm 110, clearly a messianic psalm, a psalm that predicting the Christ, Messiah is prophesied not just to be David's son, but to be his Lord. Now, how does that work? Well, you get to the book of Isaiah, 300 years after that. And Isaiah prophesied Messiah will be born of a virgin. Um, Again, this is 700 years before Christ. In Isaiah chapter nine, Messiah is gonna be both God and human at the same time those two verses describing this individual. Chapter 40 and verses three to five of the book of Isaiah, Messiah is to have a forerunner who is gonna prepare the way before him. That would be fulfilled by John the Baptist's ministry 700 years later. In Micah chapter five and verse two, the the minute detail that he would be born in Bethlehem was prophesied. And then in a passage that uh, is just full of prophecies in Isaiah chapter 52, starting with verse 13, all the way through chapter 53, there's multiple prophecies here of this servant, this this, this one who's called the servant of the Lord, who's going to suffer um, for the sins of other people. Let me just read you a couple of verses out of this. Uh, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And uh, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that would be God the Father, has laid on him, this individual being prophesied about, which would be God the Son, the iniquity of us all. The fact of Jesus atoning death on our behalf was prophesied that is 700 years before it took place. And so I have no qualms believing that the God who used his own spoken word to create the universe. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but why didn't God snap his fingers? Why didn't he just uh, uh, twitch his nose? but the Bible specifically says, and it's repeated throughout the, the uh, first two chapters of Genesis, that God said this and it was so, or it was done. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to be able to trust his word. Then we see all these fulfilled prophecies um, from this one who has spoken creation to an existence. And I, I'll take you to one more passage. It's in first, uh, Second Peter chapter three. And in this passage, we have again, a prophecy that was was related in the New Testament that even uh, takes us down to what's going on today. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to start at verse 3. This is the last book that the apostle Peter wrote before his death. And he writes, Knowing this first, that there will come scoffers in the last days, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what they're saying is, is well, this. We, where is this promise he's supposed to return? We, we don't believe it. And as notice he says they're following their own desires. They're, the reason why they're mocking it is because they don't want to be afraid of, of the Lord. They don't want to, to prepare for the coming of the king. So it's clear to me, that um, the same God that, that spoke the world into existence, that spoke um, and gave us the scriptures and has preserved them, I trust him to keep his word about Christ's return. Let's go ahead and turn with me, please, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to pick up at verse 20. We've been going through the messages of Christ, and we finished last week at verse 10. And let me just give you a little idea of what's happened in the verses between. Uh, Jesus is continuing his journey toward Jerusalem, and he's headed there to be crucified, and he knows it. And in between, uh, there's the account of the ten lepers. matter of fact, I'm going to show you a painting of them in just a second here. I'll go ahead and flip it up here for you. And um, if you remember, uh, there was only one of the ten that was healed that actually came back and said thank you. And um, remember, the guy was a different nationality. Does anybody remember what he was? He was a Samaritan, and they're again—they're not—they uh, don't get along with the Jews normally very well. And and it got me thinking that you know Luke does a lot. He's writing to a to a Greek uh, young man, and and he does a lot of developing the theme that Jesus uh, loves the outsiders. Matter of fact, I, I looked up every time the word faith was used. It wasn't a lot—twelve times in the book of Luke. What I found interesting was often the insiders, like you know, the people you'd expect to have faith, like the, the religious leaders like the Pharisees or the scribes or people like that, even the disciples, they many times lacked faith. And yet there were the outsiders, the person that you wouldn't expect to be very religious or you wouldn't expect to be the person that you'd look up to. They're the ones that had the faith. And I'll give you just examples. that I I've, And I, I've, I seem to be every case where someone had great faith... It was not the person you'd expect. For instance, um, the impotent man. Remember the guy they carried on with, with four people carrying him? He, he didn't have the ability to probably even walk. And, and Jesus, it says when Jesus saw their faith, plural. So it was the, not only the guy's faith in the, in, the, in the stretcher, so to speak, but the four guys carrying him. And they, Of course, they let him down, remember, through the roof just to get him to Jesus? Uh, and Jesus saw their faith. Then there was the Roman centurion, And if you remember, he was the guy that said, I'm not even worthy that you come to my house. You just speak the word and my servant will be healed. He wanted his servant healed. And Jesus said, I have not found so great faith in all the land of Israel. That's an astounding statement too. He was a Roman, not, not even a Jewish man. How about the sinful woman? Remember at the Pharisee's house? Remember her? She came there and she poured out her oil and her tears on Jesus' feet. And... What did Jesus say? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Interesting. She's another outsider. Then there was the woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years, she can't be around public. You're considered unclean. And, and she is definitely an outsider as well. She just figured, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be healed. And she was. And Jesus then, remember, he didn't let her get, get away with it privately. He, he called her out. And then he said, your faith has made you well. Uh, The Samaritan leper, we're talking about here, Jesus said to that, it's right there, right by your text, Luke 17, 19, it says, thy faith hath made thee whole. And then uh, the blind man at Jericho, everybody's trying to tell him to be quiet. He keeps crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus again says, according to your faith, be it unto you, that type of thing. He honored his faith again. These are all outsiders, and yet... um, And under the Holy Spirit's direction, Luke is pointing out, it's not that you have to be an inside person. As a matter of fact, it is easy to be religious without truly believing. Anybody can go to church, go to synagogue, go to the mosque, anybody can do that. But without truly believing in Christ and acting upon what God has said to be true. And we're going to find that is the case, again, in this account as Jesus is asked about the question of his coming kingdom. And so I want you to notice the question, and we're just going to read a little bit of verse 20, and then we'll have a word of prayer. It says, When he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, Okay, that's the question. That's the discussion point. When is the kingdom coming? You say there's, the kingdom is coming. When is it coming? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the discussion concerning Christ's coming kingdom. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask for your grace and help. Lord, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. We we ask for submissive hearts. I believe it was already prayed that we would be that way, and certainly we need it. We ask that you would guide us and help us now as we study your word together, to not just understand it intellectually. Lord, a lot of people can do that, Help us to believe it and to act upon it because, Lord, what we're talking about this morning are some of the core things that we as Christians need to understand, that the Savior is coming back and we need to be ready. And so I pray that you'll help us this morning, not to merely be religious, but to be true believers in what you have to say here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, notice um, when Jesus answers these people, he says in verse 20, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation neither shall they say lo here or lo there for behold the kingdom of god is within you now if you have a different translation you probably have different wording there especially with the word within you so let's just talk about jesus answer he's recognized what he's saying is recognizing the king is the key to the kingdom they're saying, well, you know, when is this kingdom coming? And, 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 um, you know, are they, are they being sarcastic? Are they being, um, belittling? I don't know. We're, we're not, we're not given that information. But these are not, um, in many cases, friendly people. They're religious people that many times want to deny everything that he has to say. And so, in answer to their question, well, what about when is this kingdom coming? He says, um, what, what he says is, it's, it's not coming with signs. Now, isn't that interesting? Don't be looking for the signs. Say, well, I thought, I thought there are signs of Christ's coming kingdom. Well, there's something uh, more important than signs at this point for these people. They're not going to see the kingdom in their lifetime. What they need to do is they need to accept the king. So, the idea is, don't, hey, don't be worried about signs in the sky or this or that happening. What you need to be worried about is who the king is. You can't go to the kingdom if you don't know the king. If you're rejecting Jesus, you're not going to be part of the kingdom. Well, Jesus had something else to say. He said in, in verse 22 to 25 that the cross must precede the kingdom. Now he didn't mention the cross, but you'll see that he's talking about the cross. Let's read the three, let's read the four verses, 22 down to 25, and then we'll talk about them. And he said unto the disciples, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the son of man and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here or see there, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of one part under heaven and shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Yeah, the cross has to precede the kingdom. You see how he said, I'm going to have to suffer and be rejected? He's talking about going to the cross. All right, so uh, some thoughts here. By the way, this is an interesting picture as well. I'll, I'll take the, the heading off so you can see it. It's of an angel giving out crosses, and she's pointing to the crown, okay, if you can see it up there. And you'll notice people are, are on the path toward the crown. This guy here, he's trying to saw off some of his cross. He doesn't want to carry the whole cross. You, you, know, you can understand that. <laughs> it's not right, but you can understand it. And you can see some people walking away, some that guy seems to be considering what to do. But the point that the that the uh that the, the the artist is obviously trying to make is if you want to go to the crown, if you want to have a crown, you better bear the cross. And although we're not living in the time period Jesus is describing here, and can I say this to you? This is not an easy passage to 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 interpret. I I do not have a chance to get into all the details just because we don't have time, but I will tell you this passage is not easy. What, well, I'm just going to try to give you some overall, some flyover truth here. And the first one is that, you know what, if you're going to be one of his followers, you're going to suffer. It's just the way it works. We live in a world that's, that's cursed by sin, and if we're going to remain loyal to the Lord, we're going to, we're going to face that. Now, now, I want you to notice how he puts it in verse 22. He says, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. Have you been there? Have you been there where it seems like, man, I would sure love for the Lord to step in and show His power and help me out in this situation, and you're not seeing it. Sometimes we're tempted to think, well, is it that God's not there? Boy, the devil's great to whisper that, isn't it? Or sometimes we think, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong, and I'm not saying you can't examine your heart. I think that's fine. But there are definitely times and it's been down through the ages. You find it often in the Psalms. As a matter of fact, tonight, Lord willing, we'll be going through Psalm 13 in our Psalms of Encouragement series. Very short Psalm, six verses. You're welcome to read it at home this afternoon if you'd like to get ahead of the curve. But the Psalmist starts out. He goes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's David. He's feeling like, God, I don't think, I don't think you're remembering who I am here you're not answering my prayers. Yeah, we can feel that way. Let me tell you what I think Jesus is talking about for, for the people that he's talking eventually to are Christians during the tribulation period, believers who've accepted Jesus during the period where everybody and everything is turned against them. And they're longing for Christ to return and and to overthrow all this wickedness. you talk We've, we've not seen anything like they're going to see it. Persecution, violence, terrible things. And they're going to long for the... And what Jesus is saying to them is, look, part of being a follower of me is gonna, means you're going to suffer. You're, they're going to desire Christ's presence and power. You're not going to see it. And you know, something else that Jesus is saying specifically, especially to those people, it's always true though, and that is Christ's followers need discernment. Now, they need to discern in a specific way. In verse 23 and 24, he talks about something that their enemies are going to try to do to them. And that is, they're going to say, well, Jesus has returned to this area. And let's keep something in mind. If you're saved during the tribulation period, by definition, you're a baby Christian. You don't have. These are people that were not believers before the rapture. If we've got this square, and I think we do, These are people that are just getting saved during that tribulation period. They're not Bible scholars, and they don't know how things are going to work. And so it's interesting. I'll show you in a few minutes that this statement about warning them about persecution, really dangerous persecution, shows up repeatedly, okay? So this is something that Christ is, going to, is getting out to these people because some of them are going to fall for this. They're going to, it's actually a trap. It's a trap by their enemies to get them so exposed so they can actually kill them. And Jesus is saying, when they tell you, go here or go there, he says, don't, don't do it. Verse 24, because you know what? When I come, it'll be like the lightning going across the sky. Everybody's going to know it. When I, he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about his coming as king. When I come back as king, everybody's going to know. You don't have to worry about where I am. I'll, you'll know. I'll find you. That's the idea. They're going to need discernment. Thirdly, Christ's followers will taste some of what Jesus experienced. Jesus said, I'm going to be rejected of this generation. I'm going to suffer and you know what he tells us too? He says, "Bear up, take up your cross, and follow me." So my question is this: Why the cross? Why did Jesus? By the way, it's a very interesting painting of Jesus' side being pierced by Joseph Tissot. He's, he did a number of Bible paintings. I've often used him. You can see the one thief; they've already he's got him depicted as already on the ground dead. What a violent scene! We can't we can't even get the horror of it in our minds. But why? Why does Jesus say? But first, must he suffer? I have to suffer. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? That's exactly right. Because of our sin. I'll take you to an Old Testament and a New Testament passage. Here's the Old Testament. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood of the that makes atonement for the soul. That is exactly why in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices that were blood sacrifices because it was picturing the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would have to bring. And New Testament then points that out. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. There were exceptions for the people who were just so impoverished they could not even afford a bird. Okay? But... According to the law, almost all things are, without, are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, what does remission mean? Remission. Forgiveness. There's no forgiveness without the blood of Christ being shed for our sins, and that's why you can't get to heaven without going through the cross. You can't do it. There is no way that our sins are forgiven without the cross. You cannot be good enough. The cross was absolutely essential. Jesus said, I must, I, I must be rejected. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, it does not mean that we're in for, for just a jolly old time as we head to heaven. We have to be prepared to serve God and to be um, under real battles. Now, that leads us to the last part of this discussion, and that is that the lost will be unprepared for the kingdom. And I'm going to take off the heading just so you can get a, an idea of this picture. It's a picture of a certain parable found in Matthew chapter twenty-five, verses one to thirteen. Does anybody know what that parable might be? Well, eight thirty didn't know it either. Who said it? Ah, you read it. Sorry. Yeah, it is. You're a good job. See, somebody got something. The parable of the ten virgins. If you remember, there were five. You can see them that had oil, remember, for their lamps. They were prepared. For the bridegroom's coming, and in, in the Jewish wedding system, they have an engagement party that looks like our wedding ceremony. But their actual wedding consists of the bridegroom coming with a whole entourage to the bride's house. Could be any time. Okay, it's very very similar to the rapture. Could be any time he comes and he gets his bride and he takes her back to his home. And so these ten ladies—they're not the bride. They're they're in the court, kind of. They're they're friends. And so they were planning on going to the wedding, but five of them had lamps lit so they could go at night and ready to go. They had lamps that, were, that had oil. Excuse me, they were ready to light them. And five of them were lazy, did not have their lamps with oil, and were not ready and didn't care. That's what's pictured here. And tragically, what the Lord was showing us is that there are some who are ready for His coming, and there are some who are not which really begs the question, that is, where would you be if the Lord returned today? Are you living in expectation of the fact that it could be today? And he could come, by the way, for all of us, or he could come for just you, or just me. So, through death. Now, he gives three examples of people that were not prepared, of generations that were not prepared for judgment when God called it down. And the first one, you'll read in verse 26 and 27. Let's go ahead and read it. As it was in the days of Noah, or that's Noah. Okay, that's just the the Greek translation of Noah's name. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Question, is there anything wrong with what Jesus says they're doing when they're eating, they're drinking, they're, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage? No, because don't assume drinking means drinking alcohol and getting... That's not, not the assumption here. The idea is that they're going through the normal functions of the day as if nothing was going to happen. The issue is not in that they were doing something wrong on that particular day. The issue was they were unconcerned about the warnings of God's judgment. Now, did they deserve God's judgment? Oh, absolutely. Let's just go back there and take a look. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read you four different verses, two sets of two, that will really show you how bad this generation was. Genesis chapter 6. And you want to look at verse 5 and 6, and then I believe it's 11 and 12. Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 5 and 6. And God saw... That the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, folks, I know we have it bad in our society, but not that bad. I'll just give you one example. Okay, television. Now let's be honest. If you if you have and an, you know, if you had a hundred channels, you know as well as I do, a lot of them are absolute junk. But not everyone. You might get a wildlife program. You might get a decent news program. You might get something. Not everything. What God is saying is basically, you look across the board, it's all bad. Look at verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he made man on earth. It means it made God sorrowful. And it, the thoughts, um, and he says it grieved him in his heart. He was grieved that he had made man. It was that bad. Skip down to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. I don't even want to imagine the kind of violence that was going on. I'll just say this. Now, uh, we had a bunch of people in the early service. I don't know if it was the hour change or what. Okay? We don't have as many people in this service by any stretch. We got more believers. I'm not saying everybody in here is a believer. Okay? But we got more believers in this church right now than Noah had in his generation on the entire planet. Now imagine a world like that. You talk about violence, you talk about danger, talk about corruption that was noah's day and noah is is building this ark because god says look you're going to i'm going to have to i'm going to have to 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 destroy the world he didn't merely do that to judge the sinners he did it to save the line toward christ and here noah is he's 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 giving out he's giving out the the, the word and warning people, and what are they doing? They're still going on in their wickedness, yes, but, they're, but but Jesus is pointing out is they're unconcerned. Up until the day the flood hits, unconcerned. Keep your finger in Genesis, but go back to Luke, and let's look at our second example, and that would be Lot. Verse 28 and 29, then we'll come back to Genesis. I want to show you his generation, too. Likewise, also as it was in the, in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built Again, nothing wrong intrinsically with any of those things. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. What's wrong with what Lot's generation was doing is the same thing, unconcern. Unconcerned with the fact that God was returning, that God was, God's judgment was going to fall, excuse me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 19. I want you to just see a little bit about Sodom before God judged that wicked city. Genesis chapter 19, you know that, that the Lord had warned Abraham and Abraham had interceded for the city and he asked God if there's only 10, 10 believers there, would you spare the city? And God said he would. And the Lord at that time sent down two angels who looked like humans. He went down there and sent them to Sodom to, to look around. And when they got to the city, the people of the city were given to homosexuality. If you remember, a mob gathered around Lot's house to, to abuse those men. Verse 11 is the angel's response. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, which means there's a, there's a whole group of people there. It's not just one or two. Small and great, is that the the big officials as well as the no-namers, or is it even age-wise? Is it the older as well as the young? There's a whole mob of people that that represent the ungodly uh, nature of this city. Let me ask you a question. If you were involved in doing something that you knew was wrong, and all of a sudden God smote you with blindness, what do you think you'd do? What would you do? What's that? I think I'd start praying. I think I'd say, God, I don't, whatever, I'm sorry. Especially when you know, you know it's from God's hand because it wasn't just me. Everybody's blind. That's not their response. Look at their response. He smites them with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. They're so given over to this sin that they are are still trying to find the door so they can break it down and abuse these guys. That's how bad they are. And notice what the angel's reaction is at this this point. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters, whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. Because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Let me tell you something. It's not merely the angels that were under threat. Think about the kids that were living there. Think about all kinds of men and women that had been ripped apart by this system. And God says, enough, I'm stepping in. I'm stepping in. And what does Jesus point out? That on the day of their destruction, they're going on with life as if nothing's going to happen. Unconcerned. It was not only true in Noah's day, it was not only true in Lot's day. Go back to Luke chapter 17 now, and you'll notice that it's going to be also true in Jesus' day. Verse 30. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Unconcerned. So I ask you this question. If this was the day when God began, and and can I just say that there there are several days that this could fit? But if this was the day that the Lord separated the saved from the lost at what we call the rapture, which spot would you be in? Would you be one of those that were taken home to be with the Lord, or would you be one of those that were going to be living through the horrific judgments that are to follow? Because what happens at this point is Jesus begins to give us some pictures of the horrors that are coming. Okay, Lot and his generation, um, when he got out, God destroyed Sodom. All right? When Noah was delivered in the ark, then God wiped out the earth with a flood. It's going to be a little different in, in, in this time period, and that is that there is going to be horrific suffering on the earth. The Bible says it's not been like it since there was a nation on earth. We call it the tribulation period. And I want to just give you some snaps of what's going on. Look at verse 31. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Now, notice, remember Lot's wife. Okay, what was Lot's wife's mistake? She looked back. What Jesus is saying is there is coming a day in which there's going to be an attempted extermination of all of God's people on the entire planet. All of them. And he is saying, you have no time. Now, now he's talking specifically, I I believe it's a very specific event. And, And a matter of fact, I'll show you that this is repeated. Well, let me, let me bring it up for you. I'll bring it up for you right now. It was, it was predicted by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, 9. Chapter, and I can't go there because you just don't have time. But you can look. If you want to write these down or you can get it from me afterwards. But those are all predictions of this terrible time of suffering where there is going to be an attempt to exterminate every believer on the planet as well as every Jewish person, because they're connected with the coming of the Christ. This man, what we call the Antichrist, is absolutely going to have hatred in his heart toward the people of God and anybody connected with the people of God. He said, and what tips this off is what Daniel calls the abomination that makes desolate. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. It is when the Antichrist, who has looked like a pretty good guy up until this point, When this Antichrist basically takes, goes into the Jewish temple that will be rebuilt, and he offers a pig on their altar. And what he's doing is, which is an abomination to them, he is showing his absolute, utter hatred for the God of the Bible and for the Jewish people specifically and anybody who's a believer in Christ. And that, Jesus said, when that happens, and you see that happen, he said, you don't have time to go into your house. You have to run immediately. Verse 33, whosoever seeketh to save his life shall lose it. You think you're going to compromise and you're going to make something work with this guy, you're dead. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. You just abandon everything and follow me, you got a shot at living. <laughs> Now again, you're going to be with God in heaven anyway, so you won't lose your life, even if your life is lost you know, temporarily. This was predicted by the prophet Daniel. It was predicted by Jesus Christ Himself. You'll notice all these references, these are from the lips of Christ. Okay? Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14. You can see it here in Luke. You'll see it again, in Luke chapter 21. All of these are predictions that Jesus made of the very same idea of this mass attempt to destroy. Um, every, every, every believer, and it's also predicted in the, in, by the Apostle John. Let me just take you to the book of Revelation for just a second. I want you to look at one passage, and it's not even the ones I have listed. John uh, Revelation chapter 13. It's easy to find because you just go to the back of your Bible. Revelation chapter 13, and I'll be right back to Luke. And I'm just going to read a few of these verses about this Antichrist figure. Uh, look at verse 4, John um, Revelation 13, verse 4. They worship the dragon, that's Satan, who gave power unto the beast, that's the Antichrist. And they worship the beast, the Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Get the picture. The idea is this, Satan is the pretend God the Father. They're worshiping him. The world is worshiping Satan, and they're worshiping Satan's, like God the Son, his Antichrist. That's what they're doing. Verse five. And there was given unto him, under this Antichrist, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. How long's that? Forty two months. Three and a half years. You'll find in chapter 12, 13, and 14 repeatedly the mention of three and a half year period. Okay, that is that is the window that this man has to try to that he has been given by God, God's allowed this, for him to try to wipe out every man, woman, child that believes in the Lord. Or if he's connected with him. Because he Verse 7 And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Isn't that interesting? He's allowed to overcome them. And power is given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This guy is going to be a worse than any figure we've seen. And he will attempt the extermination of God's people. And then notice the loss of all Christians from the earth. Now, when you say loss of all Christians, what do you mean? I, I believe this precedes that event. But I want you to notice, um, starting with back in Luke chapter 17, verse 34 to 36. <clears throat> Excuse me. I tell you, in that night, there shall be two men in one bed, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding together, one taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, one taken, and the other left. Say, well, he's been talking tribulation. Why do you think, Pastor, this happens before the tribulation? Well, uh, I'll give you a couple thoughts on it. In the Jewish system, what comes first in, when you begin a day, the evening or the morning? The evening does. That's exactly right. If you watch how they celebrate the Sabbath, when do they start the Sabbath observance? It's Friday evening, Friday sundown. That's the beginning of their day. And they get that from from when the creation week, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. And so the evening, in their minds, precedes the morning. We're like opposite of that. And that's one of the reasons why I think he's talking rapture here. Not only that, but because you have something different than you would expect toward the end of the tribulation period when, when, when the Antichrist is, again, trying to exterminate all Christians. The believers are scattered. Um, if, if they're, they're little pockets here and there, just in hiding, trying to just stay alive. In this case, you have people uh, in the same bed together. You have people working together. You have people walking together. Believers and unbelievers, it does not sound like during the tribulation period. It sounds like before it. It sounds like that time period that Jesus was talking about earlier where people are just going on as if everything is fine and dandy and not concerned about the judgment that is about to fall. Now, the disciples, so what we've seen so far... We've seen the examples of the lost before they are judged. We've seen the pictures of the horrors just before Christ's kingdom is established. And the disciples do have one more question. That is, where is this going to happen, Lord? Like, where do we have to be? So verse 37, they answered and said unto him, where, Lord? I mean, Israel? Where do we got to be? He said unto them, wheresoever the body is, thither the eagles will be gathered together. What Jesus is basically saying is this. Location's not the issue, guys. I'll take care of finding you. Just like an eagle, just like the, the birds seem to be there when there's the carcass there. You don't need to find me. We'll find you. And if you, if you look in Matthew, when Christ returns, the Bible says, His angels are going to go and gather across the world those who belong to the Lord. Yeah, we don't need to go. That's why he says, stay, stay in hiding. Don't come out of hiding. Don't try to find me. I'll find you. Boy, what an awful period! You think about this, but this is what's ushered in this division forever of of husbands, wives, this division of, of of people who love each other, work together, people who have who have just enjoyed fellowship. They're they're just divided. Families divided forever. Friends divided forever. What do we conclude from this? Well, number one, you cannot be a part of Christ's kingdom without a relationship with Christ. So these guys that are saying, well, you tell us when the kingdom is coming. No, no, you need to accept the king. The kingdom is right now here. You've got to accept me. The king is the kingdom. Number two, there's a literal kingdom, but the king is the key to it. Number two, the cross is essential for Christ's kingdom. It was essential for causing our sins to be forgiven and for you and I to stay loyal to the Lord and accomplish His plan for our lives. We're going to have to bear a cross too. He told us that. Things aren't always going to work out. It will take faith. It will take faithfulness. Conclusion number three. Many are living as if Christ's kingdom will never come. We're not thinking about it. Not merely unbelievers, but tragically, sometimes we as believers. We're making all kinds of uh, foolish decisions and really not concerned about the fact, I'm going to stand before God and give an account. Just like the people of Noah's day, though, the lost people, living in sin and rebellion against God, justly deserving His wrath, facing eternal separation from God and their, unsaved, and their saved loved ones, unconcerned about the imminent judgment... That's where many are. And I just, I, just, I just pray that none of you are in that spot. Where you're just not concerned. Lost and not concerned. Well, so how do we apply it? Let me give you four things. Number one, acknowledge Christ's person. That's what those people needed to do. They needed to embrace the king. Forget about worrying about these signs. Embrace the king. He was right there in front of them. You think there's regret? Oh, absolutely. Number two, as Christians, we need to appreciate Christ's cross. I, I understand that we sing about it and, and, and we, 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 we hopefully think about it. But to appreciate the cross of Christ is not only to appreciate his sacrifice for me, it's also to appreciate the fact that when Christ asks me to bear a cross, whether it be a physical issue or a financial issue, or whether it be a uh, just being um, uh, beaten down by by people who who despise what what the, the the truth of God, I need to realize that you know what if if Christ would bear that cross for me, I need to bear my cross for Him. I need to appreciate the cross. Not only the one that He bore, but the one He gave me to bear. Number three, appreciate or anticipate. Excuse me, the kingdom. Think about it. Am I ready? Am I ready to stand before God? If today was my last day, are there, are there people that I need to be right with? Are there, are there people that I need to, 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 to a prayerfully warn? Am I, am I being a light to people around me? And then accept Christ's promises, just like Jesus said, look, don't chase me down, I'll find you. Don't be fooled. There's lots of promises that we need to hang on to, aren't there? Lots of things that God told us as his children that we need to grab on to and say, okay, I, I know it may, I may be tempted to jump. I may be tempted to be afraid. I'm going to trust what God has said because the bottom line is simply this. Since God's kingdom is coming, you and I have to live in light of it all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Here our Savior is. and uh, Lord, just think of these guys who are standing right in front of the Savior of the world and wouldn't receive him. Hung on to their cheap little foolish excuses so they could run their own lives into the ground and destroy their souls. Oh Lord, The same thing is still happening today. And Lord, we look around. if, if, If our Savior returned today, there are literally billions of people who are just going on with no concern. And what's even more tragic, Lord, is there are many of your own children that live in the same way. Many times we, Father, fall into the same patterns. We're worried about the football game. We're worried about the grocery list. We're worried about all kinds of foolish things that that have their place, but are not what life's about. Oh, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from, from getting our eyes off the important, the essential things. And I pray for any who, if this was the last day, before that both blessed and awful day of Christ's return. Oh, Lord, I pray If there are any that are not ready, and there probably are some in the group this size. I pray, I pray that they would make ready, that they would humble themselves before the King.
0: If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you would like to see some of the original video sermons of the series Pastor has been working through concerning the messages of Christ, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. If you know someone who is shut in or otherwise unable to attend church in person, we live stream our services weekly. You can look for that service to begin streaming in just a few minutes at approximately 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. We also would like to invite you to attend our services in person. Service times on Sunday are 9 a.m. Sunday School, 10 a.m. morning service and a 6.30 p.m. evening service. We also have a midweek Bible study as well on Wednesday evenings starting at 6.30 p.m. A couple months ago, we began putting videos of our services on YouTube. So if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Hawkins Baptist Church on YouTube and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a radio bolt icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.